Cultures of Thinking. It's not just another program, it's more like a process. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience-based language and reading programs since 1999. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, we're always keen to hear what you think. Send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. And you can subscribe to this podcast for free. You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Simon Brooks has spent many years implementing the Cultures of Thinking framework in classroom contexts. He's worked closely with Ron Richard and the Cultures of Thinking team at Harvard University's Project Zero. He now spends a great deal of his time helping teachers and schools implement Cultures of Thinking, both at the individual level and school-wide. This kind of change often uses words and phrases like new and transformation or forces that shape culture. And whilst these terms might represent a scary unknown or just another thing to add to the list, Simon's passion to see children really learn helps him communicate that it's not just another program for implementation, but a long-term process that is well worth the time and effort. I caught up with Simon to find out how he starts the conversation with schools and their teachers. Simon, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've spent a lot of time in the cultures of thinking space over the years, and it, it's, it's an educational framework that many people know about across the world, but many don't. Um, why cultures of thinking and, and not some other framework? What about cultures of thinking resonates with you? Mm. Well, a, a wonderful ex-colleague of mine once told me um, that you need to have an elevator pitch. And the concept behind that is in, in the space between one floor and another on, a, on an elevator in the journey, you need to try to be able to capture the essence of what's important about something. So I've, I've been thinking about that a lot recently. And if I try to get to the essence of what it is about cultures of thinking that I really value, I think it would be something like this. So in a culture of thinking, we're looking to build a space where children truly come alive in their learning. You know, they're thrilled by the learning experience. They develop deep, lasting understanding. And perhaps most powerfully of all, they become critical and creative thinkers. And that's resonated with you, though. So this is about something else. But you're, you're talking about the fact that children becoming that, that's, that's something that, that, well, enlivens you. Absolutely. And the notion about becoming critical and creative thinkers, to, to cut to your question, I think is, is that part that excites me the most. And if you'll allow me to be a bit, bit self-indulgent, I can, I can tell you a little story that sort of brings that notion of becoming critical and creative thinkers alive. So several months ago, I have two young daughters. Um, they're in year seven and nine. And the, and, the, and the one in year nine came to me and she said, Dad, you've ruined me. <laughs> now, that's, that's not what any father wants to hear. No. Um, so I said, oh, I'll tell, I don't, don't want to ruin you. Tell, tell me more. What, you know, in what way have I ruined you? And she looked at me and she said, well, look, it used to be that I could come home after a long day at school, sit down on the sofa, put the television on, and just relax. And I said, oh, no, darling, I'm not, I'm not telling you you can't do that anymore. It's perfectly fine to do that. And she said, but, but here's the thing, Dad. Because in the old days, I could come home, I could switch the television on, I could relax. The advertisements would come on between the show I was watching, but that was fine. And she said, but now, as I watch television, I just can't stop myself analyzing how I'm being manipulated to purchase a product or service <laughs> by the commercials yeah, that she's very, watching. Very good. Now, here's the interesting thing that sort of that strikes me about that. 
So she goes to, a, and I, I can't take responsibility for having done this to her. You know, she goes to a wonderful school. There's the tons of other cultural factors. But, but the interesting thing is this. So when she goes to school and she goes to math and she goes to science, she'll be doing analyzing. Mm. But when she's coming home and she's sitting on the sofa and she's watching the television and those commercials come on, she's being analytical. Yes. It's almost happening without her even planning for it to happen or intending for it to happen. It's become a part of who she is, a part of her disposition. So in cultures of thinking work, that's what we're interested in. There are tons of other programs out there that, that provide pathways to making critical and creative thinking happen. But in a culture of thinking, what we're concerned with is how can we actually get children to be critical and creative thinkers, to be curious, to be skeptical, to be analytical. That's the shift we're looking for. So effectively what you've created is a marketing battle. You've created the, uh, the marketer's nightmare because the uh, television commercials that she's reacting uh, <laughs> against have been carefully analysed for maximum input on her and now she's reversing it and saying, well, I'm going to reanalyse you. Let's uh, think about the, the book that was, uh, that was written by Ron Richard mm. uh, about cultures of thinking. Let's have a look at some of the words that are used early on in, in, that, uh, in that description of, of the framework. Things like um, new and uh, transformation and forces that shape culture. I mean, these are very powerful suggestions. Um, and then the book also uses words like um, nebulous and mysterious. Now, to people who've been working in the same context for a long time, some people, it can be measured in decades. This could sound rather scary. Mm. Suddenly someone like you comes in and says, well, let's start talking about the cultural forces of change. How do you first approach people when you start to talk to them about this? Yeah, interesting. Look, I, I think a, a wise place often to begin with is would be with Stephen Covey, who I know that Ron references in that book, Creating Cultures of Thinking. And one of those um, Covey Seven Habits is seek first to understand, then to be understood. So I try in my work with schools and educators to, to bear that mantra in mind and begin with the space of, well, where's everybody at at the moment about these ideas? So, so one, along those lines, one actual strategy I use when I'm working with schools and educators is I use one of the thinking routines, which is compass points. Yeah. So I'll put out there some sort of aspirational statement like that elevator pitch I spoke about before, you know, a culture of thinking. We want children to love their learning, develop deep, lasting understanding, become critical and creative thinkers. And then let's have a look at compass points here. What excites you folks about that proposition? What worries you about that proposition? What do you need to know about it to move forward with it? And what suggestions might you have in order to bring that to fruition? Yeah. And as soon as we get that routine on the table, then it sends a message to the teachers I'm working with that this is a collaborative space. Yeah. This is a space where I want to surface their worries. And it's also a space where I'm not going to tread over the top of their worries. You know, one thing I've learned over the years is that when folks have worries about change or about innovation, the one thing that definitely doesn't stop them worrying is telling them that they don't need to be worried. Yes, <laughs> whatever you do, don't worry. <laughs> That's it. They don't go away then, you know. So what Compass Points does is it surfaces those concerns. And then what I try to do, you know, as, as a, I guess as a, as a colleague, as a critical friend working with folks, is just to try to help bring those ideas to the surface as, as the day goes on. Mm. 
one of the big concerns coming back to your original question that educators sometimes have is this what they're thinking is okay so you're here to tell me that everything i've been doing as an educator up to this point is wrong yeah i imagine that would be a common response and you're here you're telling me that i've got to replace that 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 stuff that's wrong with this new thing how arrogant of you and, yeah. and you know it would be really arrogant of me because I've not been into the classrooms of those teachers I'm working with, yeah. you know, and many of whom will be exceptional educators. So do you find that on the compass points thing that the, that the worry section or the, the time when you talk about worry, I, I presume you get them to write it down on a piece of paper, yes. is the worry page filled with much more writing than the other pages? <laughs> well, the way I do it is um, with compass points, I'll put a piece of butcher's paper up for excites and a piece of butcher's paper for worries. And then I'll get them to put one post-it note per excitement or worry up on the piece of butcher's paper. Yeah. And actually, both the excites and the worries tend to be pretty filled with, um, with post-it notes. Right. Um, I guess the interesting thing is that, too, that there are these ideas excite educators. Mm. A lot of educators immediately feel a connection to them. They sort of feel, oh, yeah, well, look, I've been doing something a bit like this for my whole career. And this is now just putting words on values that I have. But for other educators, there are those very, very real concerns, such as, what are you doing? You're telling me that this, everything I'm doing is wrong. And, you know, other concerns. I can see how this would work for HSIE subjects. Oh, yeah, but, but it could never work for my subject. Not for mathematics. <laughs> no, never. For, well, never for maths. <laughs> you know, and, and then over the years, other maths teachers I've worked with have, have said, Actually, that's a deeply offensive implication. There's no thinking in mathematics. Oh, right. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then other people will say, yeah, I can see how it worked for kindergarten, but not for year 12. Or I can see how it would work for year 12, but not for kindergarten. No, kindergarten young. people never think. No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. So, I mean, what I, what I don't want to do is come across as belittling these views. You know, it's, but it's, so it's really important to surface those yeah. before we can move on. So that's the first part of the answer to your question. Now, how do we deal with change? Well, first of all, we've got to surface people's existing thinking. And when we make that thinking visible, then we're in, in a position that perhaps we might better do something about it. So cultures of thinking is all about improving learning. And, and I guess any, any educator would like to think that they're talking about learning. But there seems to be quite a lot of debate about shifting the narrative from task completion and getting through the curriculum to learning. Mm. Some might think that that's so obvious that it's a bit of a moot point. But the debate seems to have quite a bit of life left in it. Is it possible that the narrative, do you think, will ever permanently shift to talking just about learning? Mm. I think back, to answer that question, I, I think back to a, I'm an English teacher by trade. And to a, a class that I taught many years ago, or actually not, a couple of years ago. And I was teaching the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet. Mm. That is the question. It, absolutely. There's no greater question. <laughs> and as I, as I taught this speech, I found myself falling into a very easy, well-rehearsed model, which is essentially me standing at the front telling them what I thought about this speech. And I was doing so, I, I hope, in a way that was engaging, that was persuasive, that was interesting. I was trying to coerce them into learning through the force of my personality, mm. essentially. Making it fun, putting on voices, yeah. you know, sharing ideas. I took a bunch of essays in soon after that lesson and marked them. And was disappointed to see that the depth of understanding around that to be or not to be speech was minimal. Mm. In other words... 
I think I'd done a thoroughly good job of persuading myself by the end of the lesson of teaching myself about this speech. I understood the speech a lot better by the end than I had done at the beginning. But that's because I'd been doing all the thinking moves. The kids themselves had not been thinking Effectively, you just swept yourself off your feet. Very much so. And I was very (laughs) proud of the way I'd done it. Excellent. But then, so I thought, well, this this won't do. So then I I thought about trying another thinking routine. So there's one called color symbol image. Mm Mm-hmm. And in this routine, what the routine asks is it asks learners to find, well, what are the three big ideas that stand out to you the most about this learning experience? Can you represent one of those with a color and explain why that color symbolizes that idea? The second with a symbol. Why does that symbol capture the essence of that second idea? And the third with a bigger image, with something more complex than a symbol alone. And How does that image capture the essence of that third idea? So I got the children to do that. Here's the interesting thing. I didn't give them any more input at all about yeah. the to be or not to be speech. But they did that. Another bunch of essays later, the difference was astonishing. The next bunch of essays showed a depth of understanding and an engagement with those ideas in the to be or not to be speech, which was so different to the first, the first lot of essays. What had changed? I hadn't done anything different. The children had. Yeah. The children had engaged in developing their own understanding. So how does this link to your original question? How can we shift from a work-based scenario to a learning-based scenario? Well, I sometimes wonder, well, do we really have any option? Without that learning-based situation, without providing opportunities for children to reflect and to think about what they've learned, if we just become work-orientated, I don't believe that there's going to be a depth of understanding developed from that simple work-orientated context. I suspect that the first cultural force talked about in the book, language, uh, not that they need to be read in order, but it just so happens to be that language is the first one. That might be a good place to start, to, to generate some dialogue with students, children, people, who, that they are still people, let's not forget that, uh, about why, why it's actually valuable to think about learning and why it's valuable to think about the speech in, in different ways. Mm. So perhaps language could be uh, something that we could talk quite a lot about, and I think we'll come back to that later in this discussion. More from my discussion with Simon coming up in just a moment. If you'd like to know more about cultures of thinking, then be sure to check out episodes 36 and 46. In episode 36, I talk with Ron Richard, author of Creating Cultures of Thinking, The Eight Forces We Must Master to Truly Transform Our Schools. And in episode 46, I talk with a teacher from a school in North Sydney, Cameron Patterson, who's had years of experience implementing cultures of thinking in his classrooms. You can find those episodes by searching for Learning Capacity in iTunes or by visiting soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Let's talk a little bit about what it means for teachers to take this on. Mm. There's, uh, there's quite a bit of uh, work that's gone into understanding why certain frameworks, like cultures of thinking, never seem to take hold. I mean, it's just another framework. It's the next thing. It's the thing that my school wants to talk about this year. Um, and I know John Hattie's written extensively about the fact that one-off type PD has uh, minimal effect uh, or that the effect isn't long-lasting. Now, how you want to define that is is largely dependent on your own experience. Now, people effectively turn up, they participate, they have a nice free lunch, mm-hmm. and uh, they claim some expenses, and then they go back to what they were doing. And lunch then, is always a good thing. Lunch is a very important thing. <laughs> and then they might use a little bit about what they've learned, and then it sort of fades away into the distance. How do we shift now to a view of longer-term engagement? Yeah. How do we do that? 
Yeah, I mean, I want I want to reinforce what you're saying first because I agree completely with that idea. There was there's a researcher by the name of Peter Cole, um, and he did a piece of research back in 2012. Um, your listeners could probably Google this phrase I'm about to say if they're interested. And he, he came up with a concept that I like. It's called the funnel of professional learning transference. Wow, that sounds like something Kevin Rudd, Rudd would say. <laughs> yeah, well, what, maybe he did. Maybe what? Peter Cole took it from him. Who knows? What does that mean? <laughs> and the funnel of professional learning transference is this. He actually represents it as, as an inverted triangle, so with the, the big side at the top and the little point at the bottom. And he, he describes this idea that when we as teachers or professionals, we go on these one-off professional learning days, we're often exposed to really interesting ideas, things that we really connect with. We think, yeah, that's great. Mm. That, that could really do something powerful in the classroom and in, in my school. But then after that day, we go back to work and there are reports to write and there are parents to meet there's work to mark, there's lessons to be planned, there's all the busyness of the school day. The routine kicks in. Absolutely. And as time passes, our inclination to adopt these ideas, to share these ideas with others, to evaluate them, um, to integrate them firmly into our own practice diminishes. Mm. So as we travel down the funnel of doom, <laughs> that's not quite how <laughs> Cole calls it, but I'm no. interpreting it. Yeah. Um, the funnel of professional learning transference, we go further and further and further down this funnel to the point that, sadly, often it renders um, any learning that we might have gained from that one-off professional learning day pretty irrelevant. Nothing ever happens about it. I can just imagine a whole bunch of teachers now thinking, I'm going to go to work on Monday into the funnel of doom. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I don't want to encourage that. That no. sounds like a, a, dast a dastardly and dark place to be. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> But, you know, with, so with that concept in mind, then, so what's the alternative, you know? Yeah. How, how do we actually do this? And there's a number of um, other thinkers who've done a lot of work around this. I think um, Helen Timperley is one that's looked at, you know, what happens when professional learning works? Mm. What are those things that make it work? And one of those things is that it's got to be founded on support from um, the executive of, of an institution, from a school. One of those things is it's got to be, it's got to be collaborative. People have got to be working on these ideas together. Yeah. But... One of the other things, and for me this is perhaps the most important, is that it needs to take place over an extended period of time, not just the one-hit wonder experience. Yeah. So I, one of the things that I do is I run courses. Um, I run a course called Thinking for Learning, and that course takes place over two days. So there's an initial day with, with exposure to some ideas, some pedagogy. Some and practice. a really good bunch. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've got to have that. Morning <laughs> tea too, crucial. Yeah, because that um, brings them back for the next day. Uh, you know, brownies particularly, I would suggest. <laughs> um, so we have day one. Then there's a space of about three, four, five weeks. And in that space, I actually ask teachers to go away and do some homework. Yeah, right. And that homework involves try a few of these things that we've been exploring together. And think about what's the one standout moment? What's that one moment that really was singing for you? Mm. You know, that really came alive, that real success story. Can you come back in four or five weeks' time and share that success story with others? And I also ask them to go away and do a little bit of reflection on what students think about them. You know, what, what, what are your students' perceptions of you as a teacher? And come back a second time around and reflect on that too. So what happens is rather than a one-off day, they actually go away and they're sort of coerced, compelled, yeah, hopefully in a good way. Yeah, you're stretching it right out, aren't you? That's right, into trying some of these ideas so that there is a greater chance, I believe, that those ideas are going to be adopted and then embedded into practice in a meaningful and in a, in a powerful way. So, 
What sort of feedback are you getting on that? Yeah, I'm getting some really positive feedback. I actually got some feedback just the other day on it. Um, and I got a lot of teachers saying uh, that this has been one of the most transformational um, professional learning experiences of their life, which is a wonderful thing to hear. And I'm sure they would have had many others. Mm. Perhaps they say that to all the professional learners, the experiences they have. Who knows? I wonder whether that's because maybe they're getting a bit more freedom to come back and say, well, look, I tried something and look, uh, I'm getting validation from you because you think that might have been a good idea or you get a chance to, to bounce it off the person who delivered the course, in this case, you. Uh, perhaps this is a, an unknown liberation that teachers might be experiencing. That's mm. fascinating. The, there's a strong teamwork or collaborative theme, as you just mentioned, collaboration, running through the cultures of thinking framework. Yet uh, something that still seems quite pervasive is, if I can uh, use some air quotes here, the silo problem. <laughs> In fact, I was talking to John Hattie a couple of weeks ago and he looked at me and said, if I went into your staff room, would I see lots of people working on their own? And I said, yeah, yeah, you would. And to which he mm. sort of nodded. And uh, effectively what you see is people in a room together working, but they're not working together. Yeah. So what you've got here is you've got the, the silo factor, people working together or not working together. Then you've got the idea of changing that and developing uh, collaboration. And then you've got this long-term idea of adopting new frameworks. So you've got mm. three big things. It sounds mm. colossal. Let's talk about the cultural force of language, which I mentioned just a moment ago. Can that help us out there? Mm, I think so. And I think the cultural force of language and other cultural forces all operating together can help us out there. If I can sort of just take us a step back, I'll come to language, yeah. but a step back from that as well. I think if we return to this silo effect, I think that does happen in schools. I think often teachers are working on their own or often within their own department, but then not cross departments. Yeah. Often you'll find... And this is, you know, this is sad. Often you'll find in K to 12 schools that there'll be a division between the primary teachers and the secondary teachers. I've heard people over the years say things that I really don't agree with, such as uh, primary school teachers are teachers of children. Secondary school teachers are teachers of subjects. Oh, dear. <laughs> those, are, those worry me. You know, we're all teachers of children. Yeah, there's been an evolution. And, and also there is something there underpinning that, which is sort of quite offensive, which is to imply that, Primary school teachers aren't teachers of subjects, and that's also a concern, you know. Yeah. So I think that's all part of this this silo effect that you're that you're talking about. How do we break that down? Well, perhaps like anything in life, if we want to if we want to break down the silo effect, we've got to give teachers experiences of why there is something better out there. Mm, a compelling they, reason. That's right. You know, they've got to feel that there is, a, there is a reason for something else to happen other than the silo effect. And for me, a lot of the work that I do with schools is around building internal study group meetings, focus group meetings, where colleagues get together from across faculty areas, if it's a K-12 school, across primary and secondary, and truly learn from one another. And that won't just be show and tell. That'll also be bringing puzzles of practice to the, to the meeting for discussion. So primary and secondary teachers working together. Absolutely. Whoa. Yeah, really, really powerful. Stop the clock. <laughs> so look, I mean, I remember one example, which was this. And I was working with a school and there was a music teacher. And this was a high school music teacher. And the, and the music teacher had this puzzle of practice. You know, and her puzzle was this. She said, what's happening is that when children are coming to my class, they're arriving... They're arriving at lesson time and they're desperate to pick up the guitars, yeah. to play on the piano, to hit the drums, to enjoy the practical experience of my subject. 
But when it comes to go beyond the, the practical to the theoretical, well, they're just not so engaged by that. Yeah. You know, they, they're not loving the theoretical side of it. It's, it's a real challenge for me to get them to connect with it. So she said, my puzzle is this. How do I help the children that I work with understand that appreciating the theoretical can just bump up the practical, can make the practical even richer? Yeah. How do I do that? She brought that puzzle of practice to a study group meeting, which contained primary school teachers, high school math teachers, yep. year 12 science teachers, English teachers. And we use a particular protocol that I teach around that one, which is called descriptive consultancy. And that's a structure, a guide to facilitating a conversation in such a rich way that she'll get some suggestions from those other teachers about how she might move forward with this puzzle. Yeah. She got some really powerful questions, uh, suggestions, mm. really powerful, that she applied and helped her find a pathway through that puzzle. There's no silver bullet to that puzzle. No, way, but of course she, not. So what happened there? Well, partly through the, the opportunity created and the protocols used, but partly through, and to come back to your question, the language that was used by the other participants yeah. around her in that study group meeting. And here I'm talking about conditional rather than absolute language. Well, there was an opportunity for her to feel that being in a, in a professional learning context like that was powerful. So the silo mentality, that can be brushed aside yeah. once people feel that there's a better way. So coming back to the idea of ongoing PD and, and longer term engagement, cultures of thinking is uh, less, less like a program for implementation and more like a process. And I think I guess if we think about it in terms of a process, that might help to start to bridge the gap between silo and developing collaboration and adopting new frameworks. I'm just going to uh, take a quote from the book, and I'm just going to read this. Um, One may well begin with thinking routines, but it doesn't end there. Thinking about the one-off PD event and, oh, that's just a program that we're going to implement rather than the process. We start here, but it doesn't have to finish there. How do we avoid the program of implementation style thinking? What can we do to stop that from happening? Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic there. And it's the difference between are we doing a culture of thinking or are we becoming a culture of thinking? Yeah. Now, if we do a culture of thinking, well, then it can just become a fad. You know, it can become one of those many other things that fly around in education all the time. They get adopted for a while, get done for a while, and then they disappear. But in my experience, unless we help teachers confront at a fundamental level who they are as teachers and what they believe that teaching and learning is about, then we can try to apply any other strategy, and thinking routines might be one. But if that doesn't fundamentally correlate with who they are as teachers, then it'll be another fad, Mm. and it'll go the same way as all the other fads might. So... At the core of that question is how do we get teachers to think about being a culture of thinking about becoming one rather than doing it? There's a way into that that I'd recommend. And a lot of schools, when they're playing with cultures of thinking ideas, the first way into it is they get teachers to experiment with routines. Yeah. Now, perhaps that's good. Those routines are really, really powerful. But long term, I think what uh, uh, one potential powerful pathway might be is to think less about routines and more about the thinking moves that underpin those routines. So those routines are underpinned by moves which are in something called the understanding map, and that comes Mm. out of research by um, Richard Church and Morrison 
um, in their book, Making Thinking Visible, which yep. is the previous mm-hmm. Ron Richard work. Yep. And that understanding map, well, it presents eight thinking moves that the authors suggest are, it's not a, uh, an exhaustive list of thinking moves, but it's eight moves that if we can get them happening in our lessons, that's going to go a long way towards building a culture of thinking. And they're moves like having children wonder at the world around them. Slow down, look closely, describe what's there. Make connections between new thinking and old. Capture the essence of ideas. Mm. So if we can help our teachers, once they get past the initial phase of, okay, here's a few really interesting routines I can use. But if we can help our teachers try to take those thinking moves into the core of what happens in their, in their lessons, well, they might accomplish those thinking moves through using routines, or they might through other opportunities that they create. And then it moves away from this faddy idea. Then it just becomes about the core of what makes effective practice. The theme I'm hearing here is long-term. Yeah. And and heavy investment as well. So something that you have to think about often. You can't just have this thing pop into your head, go to a thing, have a nice lunch, and and that's it. It is a long-term investment, isn't it? Absolutely. And a culture of thinking, here's the thing. A culture of thinking isn't just about what we do with the students, but it's about what we do as teachers. So as a, as a, as a bunch of teachers, a bunch of colleagues, are we a culture of thinking? Are we constantly thinking about our practice and how we might bump up what's happening in our classrooms? That's as much a culture of thinking as about defining it by what teachers do with students. Mm. There are eight uh, cultural forces listed in the book, and we've only sort of touched on language and one I'd like to finish with is time, because it's a favourite of mine. Uh, it's, I suspect it's also a fairly major sticking point for people, because uh, in my experience, whenever you say to someone, oh, we're going to do this, or let's try that, or we're going to implement this, the first thing that you might hear someone say is, I don't have the time. And the book describes people as being uh, victims of time, or teachers becoming victims of time. And I asked Ron Richard this question, and I, there was a pause, and then there was a, a chuckle, because I said, I suspect you've met many victims. Let me ask you, how do we stop being victims? Mm. Well, the first thing I'll say is, is confirm what you're saying. You know, this is a real problem for a lot of folks. And over the years, I've had a lot of people come to me and say something like this. They'll say, Simon, these ideas, they all sound excellent. I, I, I can see their value. The problem is I've got so much content to get through. I've got to get through all of these dot points. Uh, the content, yes. The perennial problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how can I do this thing you're telling me about in addition to getting through the content? Yeah, there's always the perception that it's on top of, isn't it? It's the either-or mentality. Yeah. And so that's one thing that, we're, that it would be a valuable direction to take here. How can we break down that either-or mentality? How can we work with colleagues to help them truly understand that it is through the critical and creative thinking that the content is delivered in a meaningful and a lasting way, that they're not either-ors? Yeah. One thing that, I, that a teacher once said to me, and this is a direct quote, is, Simon, these ideas are all very well. I just haven't got time maybe there'll be time for a bit of thinking on Friday afternoon. (laughs) You know, and I'm not saying that to mock that colleague. You know, that's why that colleague remains nameless. Um, (laughs) But what I am saying is that that, it's a real concern that teachers have. I, I believe that all teachers that I've ever worked with 
they really want the best for the students that they work with. Yeah, without a doubt. They all want that. We, we're in a wonderful profession and a wonderful, caring profession where educators want the best for their children. So when educators say, I haven't got time, that's coming from a place of real concern. I want my children to do well. I want them to do, do well in this high stakes examination, whatever it might be. And I'm, I'm feeling that what you're saying will be a hindrance mm. to them doing well. Now, that's, that's a tough problem, Colin, you know, and how we help teachers break that one down. I have some thoughts around it, but there's no, again, there's no silver bullet. Yeah, again, it's a long-term proposition. Simon, it's been great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about Simon's work with creating cultures of thinking and the process of change, then visit simonbrookseducation.com. To find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.